0: Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Hey everyone and welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie and as always I'm here with my co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you mate? Good morning,
1: Jamie. I'm very good, thank you very much.
0: I'm very much looking forward today as we have none other than Kevin Berryman on the pod. Kevin is a PhD candidate at Monash University. He looks at the moral psychology of contemplative practice and selfless experience and moral information. He is also an ordained Buddhist monk in the Theravada forest lineage and has been for more than two decades. Kevin, how are you?
2: I am fantastic. How are you both today?
1: It's such a good opening energy. That's how I feel like I always answer these questions. I always feel I'm sort of a fantastic, but I can really actually feel it radiating from you, Kevin, that you actually are fantastic.
2: I am definitely fantastic and it's good to catch up with you both.
0: Yeah, nice. So given that intro, there's quite a lot to pick through, but I want to start with what seems to be the obvious place to start, which is But this monk, whoa, yeah. what's that like?
2: <laughs> pretty good. I've been doing it a while, so it's been pretty good. Yeah, nice. Obviously, like anything in life and any vocation you take on or any major life choice that you make to take your life down a particular track, it has its good parts, but it also has its its downsides as well. Mm. It's a lot to take on. You radically change your life in so many ways. There's things Mm. you can do, there's things you can't do, but there's also a lot of freedoms in that as well.
1: Mm.
2: A lot of people think of the life of a Buddhist monk, it's austere and all these things, and it all must be so limiting, but it can actually be very, very freeing as well. I am really, really fortunate. My job, is to try to understand my own experience. That's what I do for a living. (laughs) My whole purpose, everything that I do is to try to understand the sense of self, try to be introspective and contemplative. I can't think of a better way to actually spend my life. I don't know how long I'm gonna be around for, but this is a good way to actually do that.
1: Jamie, you know, we're going to get into this, but I met Kevin because we're colleagues in the same center. We're both at the Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies at Monash University. So, what a fantastic way to align your central purpose. And then you're doing a doctorate as well in introspective technologies and thinking about introspective technologies, not only from the inside, but from the outside. I mean, you're actually the ideal guest. You're somebody who is a contemplative scientist, which is wonderful, wonderful thing.
0: Kevin, what's the nine to five like when you're in monk mode as opposed to research mode?
2: It's the same. Whatever I do in life, it's a lot of meditation and a lot of study and academic work. So I do compartmentalize a little bit. I have times of the day where I only look at academic side of things. I have other times of the day where it's like I'm not looking at a computer screen or a journal article or trying to write anything. I'm just practicing. But the nine to five of my monastic existence is I you know, get up pretty early, do a lot of meditation. When I'm in more Buddhist mode in a monastery, we might go out on arms round, we have a little bowl, walk around, people put food in your bowl. And so it's nice. You live in this kind of environment where people are genuinely being very generous and kind to you all the time. And you get to receive that. And in some small way, you try to pay that forward to them by teaching them about meditation and things like this. And then... After you eat the meal or whatever, then most of the time I've got some free time. Again, I, you know, I don't have to go to a job. I can spend my time how I want. So I'm very, very fortunate in life that I have a vocation where I can just go. I'm just going to do essentially what I want with my time. So for me, I do spend the time after the meal. That's when I allocate some time to academia. And then again, at the end of the day, I just I put it all down and go. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just going to meditate.
0: Do you enjoy the meditation or is "enjoy" not quite the right words? Like how would you describe the experience of the meditation itself?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if enjoying is the right word yeah. because it is this aspect where I really am trying to find out something deep about who I am as a person and what it actually means to exist. I enjoy the search. I enjoy this aspect of trying to always peel down another layer, like wherever I think I'm at in the meditation. It's always good to go. Yeah, I'm not there, and I need to go deeper, and I need to understand something else. And that can either be like highly enjoyable and highly rewarding, or it can be daunting. And yes. you uncover some things that you don't want to uncover when you do this. Mm. Obviously, I tend towards the positive side of it, but the, you know there are aspects of it where it's like, well, yeah, it's not all fun and games. But I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't if I didn't enjoy it to some extent.
0: And when you're meditating and you do practices when you're on the breath, mm. what is the concentration like of someone who's been doing this for decades? Is it like everyone else where it's some days brilliant and some days rubbish, or is it pretty good?
2: The short answer is, like, it is like everybody else. You have your good days and your bad days. But what determines you having a good day and a bad day is at a different level from somebody else that might've just started. So you think of like, and I'm not comparing myself in any way at all to, you know, you think Tiger Woods has a good and a bad day. Yeah. He still has good and bad days. Yeah. Your middle rung PGA tour, he has good and bad days, but somebody that would be like me that can't hit a golf ball at all.
1: Mostly bad days. <laughs> it's
2: mainly bad days, but every now and again <laughs> I smack it and I, and I get it good. So it really is variable. It's the same for somebody that's been doing it for 20, 30 years, as opposed to so somebody that's just started it's up, it can be up and down.
0: But the point is about the baseline. Yeah. What constitutes good and bad is varying around a point that's more Tiger Woods than Jamie Slevin when it comes to golf.
2: <laughs> you do get to a point after a while of doing it, it's like good and bad don't matter that much anymore. You're just continuing to do it. You know, if, if one day, mm-hmm. if it's not so great, that's fine. This is a part of understanding the mind. If another day it is really good, it's like, well, this is fine as well. This is just another way to understand the mind.
0: You keep mentioning understanding the mind and one of the ways you look to understand the mind is in terms of moral information and moral psychology. Mm. I've not run into before, I don't think, Mm. this question of how do we process moral information from one person to the other. Can you say a little bit about what moral information is?
2: Right, so moral information, any stimulus that we get in from the environment that has some kind of moral valence to it, so a particular situation that might be deemed moral or an interaction that might be deemed moral, this would be any kind of moral information that's coming into your senses. And what determines, I think, about our morality, quote unquote, is how we respond to that moral information. And there are different processes that we go through to actually respond to that information. So I think there's this aspect here of receiving moral information from the environment, but then also responding to it in a particular kind of way.
1: So the first one is about being sensitive, like tuning up the cognitive framework in a way where it can pick out the important information. It can discern the important information for acting well or acting well with others, if that's what we think by moral and then the other half of the process is whether or not we respond, something like this.
0: Yeah, yeah. And at what stage does meditation, or increasing the sensitivity of the apparatus, I mean like you start off with deontology and then you end up utilitarian? Or are we just talking, forget the qualitative nature of the moral beliefs, it's just how sensitive are we to the information coming in and how responsive are we?
2: Yeah, so this is the crux of what I really love looking at and I find really, really interesting this underlying assumption that if you practice meditation, that somehow it's going to make you more moral in some kind of way, or somehow it's going to make you a better person in some way. So while I think there is this this aspect, the more meditation that you practice, it's obviously phenomenologically, it's going to change you a lot. And generally, I think, for the better in in many, many ways. I don't think there's this one-to-one aspect of you practice a lot of meditation and you become a better and better and better and better person. Mm. There's the aspect of the mind that might be changing, but then there's also the aspect of how you move about in the world and relate to people. Yeah. I don't think you would get more and more hardcore deontological if you (laughs) practice meditation. (laughs) I've got more of these rules and I have to keep more of the rules. I think it's going to change the way that you morally relate to the world and the particular kind of practice that you do. That might have a strong influence on it, but it's not necessarily the fact that one kind of practice will make you more moral and another one will make you less moral.
0: It sounds like there's an analogy here of like, if you go to the gym, your muscles get bigger and you're more sensitive, perhaps you can lift higher weights. But it's not obvious that that makes you better at using your muscles.
2: The thing as well is like, obviously, if you think, well, I practice meditation, I'm more mindful, I'm more aware of the environment. But actually, there there could be times where you're practicing a particular kind of meditation and you're not as attuned to the environment. You might be going more inwards. So you're actually not as responsive to the feelings of others or the cues in the environment where you might go, well, this could potentially hurt someone. Or if I say this, this could harm someone because you do maybe go inwards a little bit more. So it's a tricky one to answer.
0: I'm interested in the science here. How can you test the rate or efficacy or whatever the hell of processing moral information?
2: There's a variety of ways that you can do this. You can look at these different components of what makes us a moral individual in some way. So things like our moral motivations, our moral judgments, our moral decisions that we make, the kind of moral emotions that we feel, the kind of moral behaviors that we might perform, this felt sense of responsibility for our actions. If we look at these different component processes from an empirical perspective and measure those individually, then you can actually start to build a bit of a picture of what a particular intervention might be doing to somebody's morality. I love moral psychology. I love the science of morality, but I also think it tends to look at things in a very isolated manner. It just looks at a moral judgment or it just looks at a moral behavior. And this is good, this is informative. But I also think we need to start taking into more of these components and putting them together, and then you then you can actually start to understand what makes a moral individual in a more holistic manner. And if you can do that, then you can really start to say, well, if you're looking at something like meditation's influence on morality, you can start to see, well, this kind of meditation is influencing all these different component processes of our morality in different ways. Because we're measuring moral judgments through a moral dilemma or something, or we're measuring moral behavior through some sort of retaliatory paradigm where you interact with someone and do you act aggressively or you don't act aggressively. So I think if we build a lot of these components together, we actually get a better idea of the morality of someone. And just to specifically answer your question of how can you test if people are more sensitive to the moral environment, there's ways that you can test for one's moral awareness. How quickly are you picking up from stimulus in the environment? How quickly are you responding to some kind of moral situation? Do you realize it's a moral situation or not?
1: Wasn't there an experiment pretty recently where they had somebody pretend to be hurt at the side of the road and see who was sensitive to somebody in need walking past on the street?
2: Yeah, that's sort of the bystander effect.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: Yeah, And they've been running those kinds of experiments for a long time. And, yeah, exactly. And I love these kind of real-world ways to test these things as well.
0: There's this question of what do we actually, as you say, perceive as ethical issues at the start. I mean, you quite often see in TV and culture, you'll have people with different priorities. Mm. In narratives, you'll have someone will see the same issue as a business problem and someone else will see it as an ethical problem. Mm. And I guess one of the interesting questions here is to what degree does meditation increase your lens or lean you towards seeing things that aren't necessarily obvious moral problems like the guy at the side of the road. But who knows, I think I can't help but think about like opioids and pharmaceuticals in the States where you can clearly see that as an ethical problem and probably you do primarily but equally like the reason it's going is because someone's gone and seen it as a business problem.
2: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And we're getting into like a normative area here and it's obviously you look through different cultures, you different individuals, different upbringings, they have a different normative standard. So this is a lot harder to pass apart Where I think that maybe at least meditation might help this in some kind of way is that you start to maybe understand a little bit more about if I move in the world in this way, there is some kind of maybe harm that comes to my own thoughts, my own speech, my own action. When I do these things, it impacts me negatively in some way. I don't want to be impacted negatively in some way. I want to calm my mind. I want to still my mind. So I think one could maybe tune up a little bit towards something that could be more perceived as more of a moral issue. I know that this is still
1: too much of a cartoon to capture the whole thing. This is a big topic, Mm. the idea of morality and and mindfulness and morality. But I do really appreciate this bottom-up grassroots depiction you just gave there. In part, I think lots of people would feel good about an entranceway into thinking about morality in their life if they don't think about this very much, Mm. to be thinking about it from this bottom-up way. You become more mindful of your own interactions with the world, you become more mindful of your own responses to the world, you start becoming more mindful of your interactions with the world, Mm -hmm. and then you watch. And when it makes the world a little worse, and makes you a little worse, those are things that you should maybe reflect on, giving up or altering in some way. And where you see positive impacts, where you see that this helped me feel better, Like, Mm -hmm. like honestly, like flourishing, and other people in my life are beginning to flourish, those are the kinds of things maybe pay attention to and say, turn the volume up a little bit more. Now you have the sort of from the bottom up, moral intelligence is beginning to grow just from paying attention.
2: Yeah, yeah. The more you notice it within yourself, the more it actually moves out onto other people as well. It's like, oh, sure. I realize now that saying something in this way or doing something in this way, it does impact them. So this is where I think meditation actually does help in some kind of way. But it, again, it's not like a one-to-one thing. Not everyone that meditates will get that more. It's a bit of an unfortunate thing so this is why i do think that along with some kind of meditative practice we do actually need to actively reflect on our ethical standards and our ethical impact on the world it's not just something like i'm going to do more mindfulness i'm going to get better I really do actually think you need to reflect on it quite a lot and think about it quite yeah. a lot
0: mark do you remember was it kuladasa or ramdas Someone said something like, well, one way of thinking about karma is that it's like you're changing the internal environment for better or for worse. You do something in anger that you consider unethical. Well, it's not like tomorrow you're not going to win the lottery and you were otherwise. It's more like, well, your internal processing skews negative. Yeah, Kevin, how do you think about, and this could be a totally pivot, but how do you think about karma? Oh,
2: that's a, that's a. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> let's just invoke a crazy complex topic let's see what happens yeah yeah you're
0: getting the short end of the stick here because you're a Buddhist monk. so i'm just like oh i wonder yeah, no, no. If,
2: <laughs> if we think about this from the traditional buddhist perspective of what karma is the, the actual definition of karma is that it is a kind of action And to expand that a little bit more, it's like an intention plus an action that results in some kind of consequence. So there is this process here of saying that if you have some sort of intention, you produce some kind of action, it's going to produce some kind of consequence. Now, these aren't totally linearly related in this fact of I have a good intention, I have a good action, and there will be a good consequence. Most of the time that does happen, but we all know you have a good intention, you produce a good action. Sometimes it can produce a bad result. So I usually think in terms of karma, of the way that, at least for myself, that I'm relating to the world and the kinds of intentions and actions that I'm putting out there, not necessarily worrying so much about the result because, you know, the result is something that happens in the world. There's factors in the world that I can't control. So I just have to be susceptible to sometimes I have a good intention, I produce a good action, and sometimes the result isn't so good. There's that aspect of the day-to-day karma that I think is pretty important. And I also tend to think of karma in terms of building particular kinds of habit patterns of mm. the mind.
1: Yeah, so that ends up being building a kind of mind.
2: Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. And knowing that, okay, if I produce these kinds of intentions and actions, there's going to be a particular kind of outcome that I'm usually getting. So becoming hyper-aware of those habits that you actually have and realizing that this is a kind of karma, If I'm following these kinds of habits, it's usually leading me in this direction. But if I follow these other kinds of habits, it's pushing me maybe in another direction.
1: I think, Jamie, maybe we've said it on the show before, but it's worth bringing up here again. It reminds me of that research that's recently done on scrub jays, where like scrub jays that steal from other scrub jays also become hyper paranoid and play all of these Machiavellian games where they fake bury food and then watch out for other birds to steal their food and then mark them as thieves and then never sort of go near them again. But they'll do it all on their own when nobody's stealing from them. They live in a world of thiefing birds by themselves often. So if they're a thief, they end up becoming pathologically worried about stealing. And then they burn all these extra calories trying to not get stolen from when, in fact, lots of times nobody's even stealing from them. It just goes to show, you know, you are what you do. And if you spend your time taking from other people, then you might also build a cognitive framework that becomes sensitive To when people take and now suddenly you're in a world of takers and you're overlooking all the places where people are contributing to your life and where you should already just feel grateful for what you have.
0: an anecdote in Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm not going to remember all the details here, but they try and predict using ancestry whether these American graduates were Scottish or Welsh ancestry on the basis of how they reacted in anger tests. (laughs) And the idea was you could be predictive on the basis that in Scotland the agriculture wasn't good enough for crops, so it was animals and livestock, so everyone fought with each other. You had to be very protective. And in Wales, where it was more agriculture, no one was going to steal your crops, it was much more communal. And without weighing in on the nurture nature stuff, it basically said by hook or by crook, the internal conditions, even though these kids were in Atlanta in the 90s and were not Scottish or Welsh in practical terms, they could still be predictive. And Mark, when you're talking there around like, well, you create an internal environment and then that kind of changes what world you live in. It was just interesting that if memory serves, there's a physiology that goes along with that.
1: Wow, fascinating.
2: There's a nice book by Robert Sapolsky as well called Behave, and he talks about Mm. the evolution of our genes, the way our brains are made up. And this is over countless eons of evolution. This has made us into the person that we are now. And essentially, it's all just chemicals. And we react in the particular kind of way we do because of the particular makeup we actually have. And there's also this nice tie to karma in this as well is that there's a particular kind of buildup that you have over lifetimes that has made you into the person that you are now. And some of this you control, some of this you don't. A lot of this you don't really control. So if we're thinking of karma in this kind of multi-life thing, I like to think of it in this kind of way as well. It's like there's all these different causes and conditions that have made you who you are now. And it's biology, it's environments, all these kinds of things. I love to think of it in this way as well.
0: Yeah, nice. Okay, so I wanted to talk about selfless experience because you wrote something really cool in Psyche. But before we get into that, I just want to get to the assumptions and the language around it. Yep. So in Buddhism and on this podcast, we've discussed the self a few times. Yep. So something listeners might be familiar with. But in the context of everyday life, people like are making assumptions about the self that are totally unchallenged. What on earth do you mean by the self? And what would it mean in some ways to be selfless?
2: Yeah. You've asked me what's nice. karma and now what's the self? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is morality? What is karma? What is the self? <laughs> yeah.
1: These are all the topics you're not supposed to say on a first date.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But here they flourish because of these questions. It's nice.
2: So, my understanding of the self is that there, there is this first-person perspective that we have and that we feel is you could say the center of our identity and this is the thing that carries along with us uh, throughout our life this feeling of inside I'm me to some extent I'm Kevin to some extent so I think there's this feeling of being some kind of agent in the world and in some way we know it's changing it's evolving it's moving but at a core it's there's something that still makes me me. So, when I think about the self, it's that feeling of being an internal agent.
0: And by internal agent, you kind of mean the guy behind your eyes, because I kind of think I I live here. If I identify on the body where I live, it's probably there. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, exactly. You close your eyes, and it's like, whoever's left there behind this space behind your eyes that keeps talking to me and feeling these things, this individual.
0: I'm asking this in slightly, only slightly, in an intentionally stupid way. But what's the buzz? Like why are we looking to dislodge this? What's so great about dislodging the
2: self? So dislodging it, that's a harsh term. It's like, do you really want to dislodge the thing? Mm. I understand where you're going with this. So at least the way I relate to something like this, it's not dislodging it in some kind of sense, because if I dislodge it, I lose all my memories, I forget who my mum is, and I don't want it I don't want to forget who my mum is, obviously. But what I do want to understand about it is that this thing that I really hold dear, it's something that keeps changing. It keeps, it's a process that keeps moving. And the more I identify with it, this is something that gives me obviously a lot of happiness, but it also can give me a lot of discomfort as well. So seeing that this thing that I usually identify as me, this thing that might get attacked and I get hurt because somebody attacks it, Seeing that this thing is just a process and there's something that I shouldn't be so beholden to, and that it is just something that appears out of nowhere, seeing through this kind of illusion of the solidarity of it, I think gives a kind of freedom to not react and respond so much when we, we're faced with things in the world.
0: I think I've heard this described in some of the terms where if you are super attached to the idea of you as a self, mm. well then everything happens, happens to you. Yeah, but. As that loosens up a little bit, then the pointiest bits of the narrative of your own life are sort of viewed through a slightly different lens. Mm, for sure. You spoke about on the journey to selflessness, or rather you questioned whether there was a journey, like is this a specific direct path or is this something different? Mm. Can you explain the question or the conflict between those
2: two views? So at least in that psych article, what I was speaking a lot about was these very powerful, transcendent, spiritual for want of a better word, an awakening experience that are these very, very powerful insights that we might have. Sometimes those experiences might be into selflessness, that there is no self there. Sometimes it might be a unification with something bigger. It might be an experience where you feel a unity with the divine or something like that. So those kinds of very, very powerful experiences, I guess if you're looking at this from a Buddhist lens, a lot of the time it is moving towards selflessness or it is moving towards stillness. If you're looking at this from another kind of framework it might be producing a different kind of state but to answer the question specifically well you know is it a specific journey is it a specific path or is it something else this is where i love the sort of plurality of the path it's like there's many different ways that people can access these things and so there's no set kind of you need to meditate in a buddhist manner Uh, do these specific practices, and you get to goal X. There's many different ways that we can can access this. There's many different ways we can access these kinds of states. There's many different ways we can access these understandings. Part of the thrust of the article is that sometimes it seems like such a good thing to do, and it seems like it'd be so blissful, and it's like, yeah, I'm going to be in a cave, and I'm going to be meditating, and everything's going to be great, but sometimes it can get a little bit hairy. Sometimes you can get lost. Sometimes you can get self-deluded believe that you've got something and that that you don't have. So sometimes it can be this kind of drifting in an ocean as opposed to being this specific path that you're following. So delving into one's own existence, it's the whole landscape that colors everything. So whatever you're experiencing, you're thinking is actually is is true and right. And so it's hard to actually get behind that and get under that to some extent and realize, oh, there's, there's maybe there's something more or maybe I'm interpreting this in the wrong kind of manner. So I think on the journey or whatever to selflessness, there can be a lot of pitfalls. It can be a lot of mistakes. There can be a lot of misunderstandings. So that's why it's really important to bounce your practice off other people. See how your practice is actually changing how you interact with the world in some way. Is it actually moving towards something where you are becoming a more flourishing individual and helping others flourish as well? So yeah, there can be pitfalls and you just have to watch out for the pitfalls, but try to move it in this way where it's moving towards a positive.
0: Kevin, before we finish up, what for the a listener who is listening and is looking for some practical edge that they can start in some small way integrating into their life. What would you say to that listener about practice, about anything you've picked up along the way?
2: So so yeah, some practical things. I think a big part of taking on some kind of contemplative practice is that it's very broad, very diverse. You have to work on these aspects of your own internal life, but then you also have to actively work on these external things as well. You do have to put a lot of effort into thinking about the way that you're interacting with the world and you're interacting with others as well. So while, you know, I love meditation and it, and it is very much do the meditation, learn about something that's happening inside, Balance that with the outside as well. Balance that with thinking about the way that you speak and act with people. Balance that with some kind of way that you can contribute to society in some way, or you can contribute to knowledge, or you can contribute to something in your local environment that is going to make things a little bit better in some way. You have to do both. You can't just do one or the other if you do one or the other, then it isn't a well-rounded practice. And I think there's something about it is like, we can have these profound and beautiful insights and all these things. But if it doesn't actually improve something about the world around us, like, well, why bother? What are you doing? Why bother? Yeah. What, are you, what are you actually doing this for? So yeah, I really do think there needs to be a balance between the internal and external. And we need to, we need to work on both as, as much as we work on the other one.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. That was a lot of fun.
2: Really fun. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Mark. It's it's been so nice to actually like chat to you about these things. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. I hope really that you enjoyed listening to that half as much as we enjoyed recording it. I'm really looking forward to seeing where the research goes and have a great rest
2: of the day. Will do. Thanks.
0: So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies.